We continue in the chronological life of Jesus, and we're picking up now in Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book and He gave it back to the attendant and He sat down and, all the, eyes of, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So, you see that that he has returned now to his hometown. Remember in Capernaum, he had done a fair amount of ministry. So, So for this year and a half, he's going to spend the majority of the time of his first year and a half to two years of his ministry right there in this region, in Capernaum. But, uh, uh, he then returns to his hometown, Nazareth. They had heard things that had happened in Capernaum, but now he returns to his hometown. And it says that as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. There was no commandment in the Old Testament in the Law of Moses to go to the synagogue. There were no synagogues, no reference to a synagogue in the Old Testament. So again, this was a human construct that Jesus utilized. And, and, uh, but there was no commandment to go on the Sabbath day into a synagogue. But this was his, his custom. It was not a bad custom. It was a good custom. There is no commandment that we be in church on Sundays. Did you know that? There's no commandment. But it is a very good custom to have. And in my experience, people who are not there and making this a regular part of their life, it is hard for them to really grow and go on. Now, maybe you will be the unique case. But I'm not sure about that. I rather doubt it. But this was his custom, and it was not a bad custom to be in the Sabbath day, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And then it says that when he was there, he stood up to read. And the reason he stood up to read, and this is a practice that was very common in that day, rabbinical practice, and still common today. The rabbis stand up to read the Word of God. It is out of respect, and they sit down to teach. You stand up to read, you sit down to teach. And you will see the same thing in the life of Jesus that often he will stand up to read and it will say that and he sat and he began to teach. Very common. Unlike, you know, Baptist preacher stands up to preach. No, they sit down to preach. Again, there's no commandment that you have to do it in one position or another. It was the custom of the day. And in fact, in, in, in synagogues often remains that custom in an Orthodox synagogue. So he stood up to read and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And so, the way, the way this is done, was done then, and continues to be done now, is that the first five books, the, the Torah, the, the first five books, the books of Moses, are divided up into 54 sections. Each one of those sections is read on a particular Sabbath day. So, you go into the synagogue, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a synagogue in Houston or a synagogue in Jerusalem, they're going to be reading from the same Torah passage. And it's... it's similar to what's often done in a Catholic church. No matter where you go, they're reading from a similar passage. So, he was reading from this passage, and and so the reading of the Torah was already done. After the reading of the Torah, then they are to read 
from one of the prophets. So we'll take one of the prophets and they will read a passage again that's already pre-designated for them to read for that particular Sabbath day. And it's divided and, and, and that passage from the prophets generally is chosen to complement the passage from the Torah that was read, the passage from the first five books of Moses. So the, the entire Old Testament to the Jew is called the Tanakh, but the first five books of Moses from, from Genesis through Deuteronomy are called the books of Moses or the Torah. So they'll always read from that every Sabbath day. And then they'll choose one of the other prophets that complements that portion. You have to read at least three verses from the prophets. At least three verses. And what Jesus does here is very interesting because he reads from the passage of Isaiah 61. But he only reads a verse and a half. So already he broke with tradition... He only reads a verse and a half, and we'll see why he stopped at only reading a verse and a half and not the mandatory at least three verses. So they hand him the book of Isaiah, so that's the portion to complement the Torah reading from that day, and he stands up and he reads. And a lay person is, is able to read in, 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 in the synagogue, that can certainly happen, and, and he stood up, although many considered him as a rabbi, but he stood up to read. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So you see that that what he did is he just read, if you were to go back to Isaiah 61, you would see Isaiah 61 verse 1 and half of verse 2 is all he read and he stopped. You wonder, well, why would he do that? And he says, and we understand now why he did that, because he says to them, he, and, and you see, he says, it clo- he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And when he sat down, all the eyes of the synagogue were upon him. Now, if he had just handed the book back and went back into the pews and sat down, how could everyone see him? You can't. No, he sat down in front of everyone. That is the typical teaching position. And now everybody is looking at him. And he's sitting down and he begins to teach. And he, and he says to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we know why he only read a verse and a half. Because he's saying to them, This portion is being fulfilled. And if you go on and read in Isaiah 61, further on, in the other half of verse 2 and 3 and onward, That is talking about a different prophecy. Often in the Old Testament, you will see a portion, and a portion of that is a particular prophecy, and connected right on with that is another prophecy for another generation, another age. In fact, fact, maybe even another dispensation. And so you will see that Jesus is only fulfilling this portion of it in this first coming. The other portion of it, he will fulfill in his second coming. So he stopped there and he said, this portion is being fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people, it says, it says in verse 22, and all the people, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, can you imagine the son of God, the author of all these things, reading this passage? The power that must have come forth. The anointing that must have been there. You can take two people, read the same portion of scripture. One is doing it academically. The other is doing it out of passion that they really believe this. And you can tell the difference. 
Imagine the Son of God reading this portion. Be like, whoa. You know, just blown away. This is God. Come in the flesh, reading this portion. And so these people were so struck at his reading. And they, they were so amazed by this, they, they, it says, all were speaking well of him. I mean, they just embraced him. Okay, he didn't read the full three verses like he was supposed to, but that didn't matter much to them. They really embraced him in this. Because it was so powerful. They were speaking well of him, and all the words which were falling from his lips, everything was delightful to them. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, they are trying to claim part of him. We know Joseph. You know, we knew Joseph when he was around. We know Mary. We know his family. I mean, he's part of us. What happens is, is uh, for example, um, uh, there, there is a, a football player who I knew when I was in high school. And I knew him. He didn't know me. But, but uh, um, so then when he went to play in the pros, I still knew him, and I spoke well of him all the time. Oh, he and I went to high school together, but he knows nothing about me. He was a stud. He was a star, and everybody knows him. And even, you know, right on through to his retirement, you know, I say, oh, he and I were in school together. Oh, you were? Yeah, we were in school together, because that's true. But he didn't know who I was. So you you see what you do. If if there's somebody who's great, you want to embrace them and make them sort of a part of your family. I know them. And so that's what they're doing. You, you know, oh, I know him. You know, I know his family. I know his mother. I know his brothers. I know his sisters. This is what they're doing. And they really like this. And then Jesus goes on. And you wonder, well, why didn't you just stop here, Lord? Why didn't you just stop here? It's going so well. Now look what Jesus says. Verse 23. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. That's a change, isn't it? <laughs> you know? They, they just loved this guy and loved every word. And then Jesus says to them, no doubt you're going to quote to me this proverb. So Jesus is quoting to them a proverb from that day which says, Physician, heal yourself. So what we have heard you do in Capernaum, do right here in your hometown as well. We want some of those miracles. We want some of those healings right here in your hometown. And then Jesus doesn't say anything other than to tell them two stories from their own scriptures. Nothing new. He adds nothing. He adds absolutely nothing new. He says, let me just tell you two stories from your own Bible. And so he tells... In, in two sentences, he tells one story, 
In another sentence, he tells a second story. And he makes reference, in verse 25, he makes reference to a portion where, where uh, uh, there was a woman who was a widow in the days of Elijah. And so, so what had happened in the days of Elijah and, and this widow, you, you, can, you can actually go back and read it. This is in uh, um, 1 Kings se- chapter 17, but I'll, I'll briefly tell you the story that Elijah was... Uh, uh, told by God that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. And Elijah told this to the people and, and uh, God said, I'm going to provide for you. First of all, you go to such and such a, 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 a stream by Cherith and I'll, I'll take care of you and the ravens will provide for you. And the ravens did, but then eventually the stream dried up because it hadn't rained for three and a half years. So the, the stream eventually dried up. So even though God made provision for Elijah and said, you go to this stream and the ravens will provide for you, it didn't mean like they would provide for you forever. He never said that. He said, they'll provide for you. And they did, but then the stream dried up. And then he says, I want you to go. I want you to go and there's going to be a widow in the town Zarephath, which is, which is in the land of Sidon. And she's going to provide it for you. So she was a Gentile woman. And this Gentile woman had great faith. Elijah goes there and he sees this woman by the gate gathering sticks. And he says, woman, get me something to drink. Get me some water. Now remember, water is really scarce. And so she proceeds to get him some water. He says, oh, when you come back, bring me some bread also. She says, you know, I have a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm just preparing sticks so I can make a fire and cook a few bread cakes for my son and myself. We're going to eat it and then die. This is our last meal. And Elijah says to her, Elijah says to her, you go and you do as I said, and then your flour will never run out and your oil will never be be run out until there's food come in the land. And she, by faith, went out and cooked him, brought him bread, brought him water. He ate and then her provisions never ran out. In fact, at one point, Her son died of a sickness and Elijah raised her son to life. This was a woman, a Gentile woman, who had shown great faith. Then he tells another story about Naaman the Syrian. And Naaman the Syrian is in in 2 Kings chapter 5. So so Naaman, or in in the Jewish people would call him Naaman. Naaman, what happened is is, uh, he was a great general. He was a general of a people that would often attack the land of Israel. He was a Syrian. He was a general in the Syrian army. He had a slave who was a Jewish girl, a young girl slave. And she told her mistress, she said she really liked Naaman, the, 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 uh, the general. And she said, uh, you, you know, and Naaman was a leper. And she said, you know, there is a prophet in Israel that if Naaman would go, Naaman would go, General Naaman would go, he would heal Naaman. And so the woman, the mistress, went and, and told this to, uh, uh, to Naaman. And Naaman goes down to Israel, meets with the prophet Elisha. Elisha says, all right, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to dip in the Jordan seven times. And he's like, I thought you'd just come out, wave your hands over me, and I'd be healed. we got much better rivers in, 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 in uh, Syria than this little stinking Jordan stream that you've got here. And, and there's really not much of a river. By, by American and Canadian standards, that is a puddle. Uh, but anyway, he said, you go and dip in there. And he got all upset. He walked away. But one of his, his servants came to him and said, look, this guy told you to dip yourself seven times. If he had told you to do something great, like you know, go out and kill an army, you would do it. 
to be cleansed of your leprosy. Why don't you just do this? So he goes, he dips himself seven times, and he's cleansed. Again, a demonstration of great faith. He goes all the way down into the land of Israel, dips himself seven times, which is a humiliating thing. A lot of people don't want to get baptized because they're humiliated. They think, oh, this is, this is below me. It's not below you to be baptized. It's obedience to be baptized. But, you, you know, imagine in front of all his, his soldiers, he's got to, you know, take off his garb and dip down seven times, not just once. You, know, you can't fake this thing. <laughs> seven times. And he's got to go in there and dip himself seven times into the Jordan. He comes out and he's cleansed. And then the people hear these two stories. Nothing new. He just told them two stories from their own scriptures. They became, it says, so enraged. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. They took him. They drove him out of the city. They took him to the cliff. And if you go to Nazareth today, there's a cliff at the, at the edge of Nazareth. That cliff goes down into the valley of Megiddo, uh, where the... the, the uh, the last battle, where the battle of Armageddon will one day be fought. Many battles have already been fought there. But they were, they were going to throw him off that cliff, and Jesus, it says, walked out through their midst because it wasn't their time. It doesn't give us much description of how he did it, but we do know that when they came to get him, uh, when he was in the garden, they were looking for Jesus. He said, I am he, and all the soldiers fell down. I mean, it was as if the guy said, it's not my time, guys, and he just starts walking out, and the men are just falling down. Nobody can touch him. He just walked right out of the midst. But what would make a congregation go from loving him, wanting to be associated with him, like, like I wanted to be associated with the, the football player's name is Art Monk. Who's ever heard of Art Monk? I mean, that guy played for years. He and I went to high school together. <laughs> and in fact, we went to college together because I, I was in Syracuse, he was in Syracuse. He never knew me, but any, in any case, they... they uh, um, they wanted to be associated with him. What would make them from wanting to be associated with him, loving every word, to just hearing two stories from their own scriptures and wanting to kill him? And I thought about this and thought about this and I said, Lord, why would they want to kill him? You know, even if they said something offensive. You know, lots of people have said things that offend me. And I may, you know, turn around and walk away or I might storm off all upset. But I've never killed them for saying something offensive. You know, I've never said, you know, I've never pulled out a gun and shot them for saying something offensive. I mean, and here's a whole congregation. So you can have some looney tune, you know, you get them upset and they want to kill you. But a whole congregation where they're supposed to be somewhat civil and, and nice, what would do this? I said, well, who do we want to kill? Well, we want to kill murderers, but obviously Jesus wasn't a murderer. But you know the other pe- people we want to kill? You want to, the, 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 the spirit just rises up, are traitors. You know, there, there for example, uh, uh, recently some of our predator drones have flown over and killed U.S. citizens overseas. Now, whether you're in favor of that or not is not the issue. And I won't, I won't tell you where I stand on this. But there are U.S. citizens overseas that the U.S. government feels are working with Al-Qaeda, and so they send over a drone to kill that person. Right? You've heard about this? Or are you too busy studying? You don't, you don't news, you know? <laughs> Get it on Google, you just Google news. So these drones will go over and, you know, kill these people. And not just once, but several times lately. U.S. citizens they've killed. Because they feel they're working with the enemy. And 
Many Americans' response is, well, you know, don't work with Al-Qaeda and you won't get a drone shooting you. It's almost as if, okay, it doesn't really matter. Whether they have a trial or not is irrelevant. They're a traitor. So it's the same sort of thing. They viewed Jesus as a traitor. That he would ever suggest that he need not, he's not going to do any miracles here, that he would even make the suggestion that he might do this to our enemies. That he might go and bless our enemies. You know, what he had done in Capernaum was to Jews. He had healed up Jews. Jesus didn't often heal up Gentiles. Only a few times did he do that. And in each of those cases, he used it to shame those who should have had more faith. There was a Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus to heal her, her ailing daughter who was filled with a demon. And he really gave her a bit of a hard time. He says, you know, I haven't come to the dogs. You know, you don't feed the, the children's bread to the dogs. And she says, well, even the, the, do, the, the dogs get to eat the crumbs that, that fall from the children's table. And he says, woman, your faith is great. Your daughter's well. And then there was the Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion said, you don't even have to come to my home. Just speak the word and, and my son will be healed. And he said, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he healed the man's son. That he would even make the suggestion would be like this. If somebody, if, if, imagine Jesus coming to your church today. Imagine Jesus coming into the church today and saying, I don't think I'm going to minister here. I think I will minister, I'm going to go minister to Al-Qaeda, to Hezbollah, and Hamas. That's where I'm going to have my ministry. Do you know what these people are like? Do you know what Naaman was like when he came marching into Israel? you know how many people that general killed? And he took our little girls to be his slaves? Don't you know? These are our enemies. They can't be right. You can't speak for God if you feel that way about our enemies. Let me put it in, in another context, in, in, uh, in a modern context. So many evangelical Christians rightly give deference to Jews and Israel and rightly want to bless the Jews. But how about blessing a Palestinian who happens to live there? And many people will say, oh, well, the Palestinians, it's not their land anyway. You know, God gave that to Abraham. And they shouldn't be in the land anyway. Well, they're there. So what, do you want to kill them? I mean, that land had been given to Abraham. The widow in Zarephath was in that land. And Jesus ministered to her. Syria was also part of the land that was given to Abraham. And Naaman was in that land. And Elijah and Elisha went and ministered to those people. What about them? What about those Palestinians? It doesn't mean that we have to hate the Jews to love the Palestinians. You know, there was, a, there was an occasion where, where Joshua, Joshua was about to, to make an attack on a city, and he sees somebody standing there with a sword. And he says, are you on our side or for our enemies? And it turns out the one holding the sword was an angel, the angel of the Lord. And he said, no. Are you for us or for our enemies? The reply was, no. I'm captain of the Lord of hosts. He wasn't taking any side. The enemy 
The, the, the enemy of my friend is not necessarily my enemy. Just because I love the Jews doesn't mean I hate the Palestinians. What would take a person to change their attitude? And if, you know, it's very easy to get a mob mentality. To come against somebody because of a mob, mob mentality. And you say, you know, I never would have done that. If Jesus had spoken in my congregation and said he was going to go bless the Gentiles, I wouldn't have brought him over to the, the brow of the temple there and, and, and to the brow of, of the city there and, and to ha- have him killed. Um, look over in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus dealt with this issue as well. If we think we're any better than anybody else in not doing things. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, Verse 29, Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that that, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpent, you brood of vipers, How will you escape the sentence of hell? So when we read a passage where a group in a congregation comes against our Lord and says, how dare you say something that doesn't fit with my mindset? How dare you minister to my enemies? I never would have come against the Lord on that. Oh, those terrible Jews, look what they did. Just remember, you would have done the same thing. We are no different than anybody else. No different than anybody else. And these, these sociological studies that have been done uh, uh, concerning the Nazis show that anybody would have done this as they were party in that country. This is why the scriptures say, Lord, lead me not into temptation and keep me from evil. Where Jesus said, this is the prayer you should pray. Lead me not into temptation and keep me from evil. So in other words, don't, Lord, protect me from even getting in a situation where I might even have to be in that. And if I do find myself in this situation, let me not walk in evil. We should never think ourselves so great that, oh, look what that guy did. I never would have done that. I'll tell you, you know, when I I hear of, uh, you know, men stumbling and, and immorality and things, I will never say, oh, how could that man fall into immorality and just, you know, trash his family that way. When I hear it, it's like, God, protect me. God, protect me. Because I've heard men say, you know, many things may happen in my, li- in my life, but I would never be unfaithful to my wife. And it's interesting, those very men that say that are the ones that end up in adultery. So it's interesting. We are to cry out, God, help me. God, let me not fall into temptation. Lord, protect me. Lord, protect me. You know, when I, when I hear, you, you know, things that young people do, I don't want to cast any judgment. None. None. You know, if, if I had been as handsome as that guy is when I was a kid and had as many women hitting on me as he has hitting on him, I'd have probably stumbled just like he did. That's the reality of it. But my personality and my looks protected me from that. (laughs) God has something for us. 
You know, the scriptures say, if you think you stand, if you think you stand, let a man who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. If, if, let a man who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. You know, if you had asked these people, would you ever try to kill a man if he told you two portions from your own scripture? They'd, they'd be like, huh? Never. Never. But this is what they were. This is who we are. This is how wicked our hearts are. You can turn in an instant, and especially when there's this mob mentality, to want to kill a person. And remember what I am telling you. God has something different for us. This would be tantamount to Jesus coming and saying, I can't minister here. Your faith isn't great enough. I'm going to Al-Qaeda. I'm going to Hezbollah. I'm going to Hamas. They'll receive me. That's what he was saying. They viewed him as a traitor. Just to quote from them two, for them two passages from their own scriptures. I read this portion. I said, God, protect me. God, keep me from temptation. From ever standing in your ways. From ever thinking that this person or this person isn't good enough for you to reach out to. That only me and my little community, we are the ones favored by God. This is what Jesus was saying. This is what he hit them with. This is what Jesus does. What happens in your life when he takes something that you really treasure and it begins to get shaken up? Will you turn from God? Will you turn from God and say, well, look what he's done in my life. How do you know what's going to happen? You may be engaged to somebody and they get run over by a car. These things happen in life. What will you do when your life is shaken up? Will you so reject the Lord? Or will you believe His words? God's love for you remains. Don't be turned off when He comes and says something that may shake up your world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the Scriptures, for the truth of your Word. Father, I pray for these young people that you so get a hold of their hearts to keep them from temptation and deliver them from evil. Father, that their hearts and their minds would be opened to extend the love of Christ. Father, I pray the mercies and the grace of God be upon them. The mercies and the grace of God be there upon them. Father, I pray that when things come in their life, when words that are spoken, when words that are preached come and shake up their lives, that they don't so turn from you and reject you and reject your loving hand. Father, have mercy on these young people. Keep them from temptation and deliver them from evil, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.